this is Adam Bellos and I'm David Hazzoni. I'd like to welcome you to our first podcast of In the Blue Corner. Our very first special guest is former Ambassador to the United States and Deputy Minister Michael Oren. While we will be interviewing Michael, we will also be enjoying a wonderful bottle of the Maya White from the Maya Winery. Michael, thank you for being with us. Pleasure, guys. Pleasure always. Uh, it's a brand new winery. It's run by all women. What, what do you think? Delicious. I like the wine. Uh, Michael, how old were you when you made Aliyah? I made Aliyah when I was 22, but I came here when I was 15. And uh, you served in San Khanim? Paratroopers, yeah. Paratroopers, and you fought in which, which? Couple. 82, a number, of, I was in the first Intifada, second Intifada, I was in a number of operations. The last operation I was, the last war I was in was, uh, was 2006, second Lebanon war, and then I was in the 2008 uh, Castlet operation. And That's you, you were also life. part of the, uh, the withdrawal from Gaza. And part of the job, which was very traumatic. And then you served in the uh, in foreign ministry as, as ambassador. Yes. Right after that. Yes. I have one important question for you, Michael, that I think will be on the minds of all of our listeners. Uh, in terms of all the different types of service that you've given to the state of Israel, what for you was the most meaningful throughout your career? The period when I was, um, I was sent by the state of Israel, after I got out of the Israeli army, to uh, make contact with and work with the Zionist underground and the Soviet Union. Uh, how long were you over in uh, the Soviet Union? months. And it was um, brutally difficult. We were arrested and almost every day and interrogated and I was hungry. The first time in my life I'd ever been really hungry. And, um, but what I met there, I met the most courageous, extraordinary human beings I'd ever imagined. And uh, they have always remained a source of inspiration for me. The first, the first contact I had, the, the, my liaison when I arrived there was a 23-year-old, very brash, very handsome young man by the name of Yuli Edelstein, who's oh. today the Speaker of the Knesset. Okay. <laughs> and my first act in Knesset was to vote for him, which was pretty amazing. Wow. wow. How many children do you have? Uh, three and, and how many four and a half grandchildren. Four and a half grandkids. Congratulations, Mazel Michael, you wrote a book a number of years ago. There was a New York Times bestseller, Six Days of War. It changed the way people learned about the Six Day War. It was yeah. both a, a th somewhat of a thriller and an academic book. Uh -huh. And last week, Netflix released the Ellie Cohen series, right. The Spy. Right. Uh, it's starring Sacha Baron Cohen. He plays yeah. uh, Ellie Cohen. It's it's filled with a number of Israeli stars. It uh. If he did a but one thing's wrong with it. A number of things are wrong with it. Well, a big thing wrong with it is not filmed in the state of Israel. And when I was a, a deputy minister, I tried to advance a program which I called Holywood. Mm -hmm. You've heard of Pallywood, you've, you've heard of Bollywood. I was trying to transform Israel into a film hub um, because Jordan makes a lot of money and Morocco makes a lot of money on making films. We have everything here. We have topography, we have population, we have uh, excellent film crews. Uh, it's the state of Israel, the government had to make a strategic decision to invest in films. That's the way you get mm -hmm. films to be made in your country. And I received the Ellie Cohen uh, offer. Oh. And it was turned down. It was turned down by our treasury. And uh, so the film, if you look, there are places that look Israel-ish. Very Israel-ish, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. It's filmed in Budapest and filmed in Morocco. Wow. I did not know that. That's uh, fascinating. There we there go. Were, there were a couple of, like, specifically... <laughs> and it should have all been filmed here. Yeah. It should have all been filmed here. So, uh, if you saw the video, or if you saw the film, yeah. what, outside of your one, I guess you could say, dislike that it wasn't filmed here, what, what did you think of how the story it. was presented? I think it was, I think it was presented well. Cinematically, uh, I thought it was beautifully shot. No, I thought, it was, I thought it was fair, fair to Israel. I think it's, it's understanding the complexity of him, that he was, he was a Zionist, a patriot, but he also had a certain, you know, certain ego. Um, what his wife went through, what his family went through. Um, 
you know, some of the, the events described in there are described with great accuracy. The, the, the Syrian attempt to divert the Jordan River, uh -huh. which was one of the events that, that precipitated the Six-Day War, ultimately. Um, there were several historical inaccuracies, but okay. Not the least of which they show Israelis watching television. Television did not come to this country until 1969, friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, there you go. Well, what's going on with you these days? I'm not running for office. I'm not in elections. Woo! Uh, yeah, this is a good thing. But I'm involved in, uh, in business as one does when one gets out of politics. I'm writing. Um, I had an op-ed in the CNN uh, this week, uh, an article in The Atlantic the week before. I do a lot of media um, on American television, Israeli television as well. And I write books. I kind of had this feeling of, Michael's back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. I can say things now in print that I haven't been able to say in many years. I can expand on Israeli policy, but I can also criticize existing Israeli policy. That's not doing enough. So, for example, in the CNN article, address the question, what happens if Israel has to go to war against Hezbollah? Have we made our position and our expectations very clear to the American administration? And the answer, as far as I know, is no. But more importantly, what happens if uh, President Trump goes into negotiations with his Iranian counterpart, have we made our position unequivocally clear what we expect would be the outcome of that negotiation? Now, we didn't do that with President Obama, and that enabled President Obama to always say to us, well, I know what you Israelis think is a bad deal, but you've never come out and told us what you think is a good deal. Well, I think it was a mistake back then. I think it would be a doubly mistake now. I think it's very important for us to come out and say, uh, Mr. President, you know, we're not going to tell you with whom you can negotiate and when, but if you do negotiate with the Iranians, this is what we need. These are our red line requirements in any new Iranian nuclear deal. Let's talk a little bit about the Iran deal. You as ambassador wore kind of multiple hats, right? You were, in a sense, a spokesman of Israeli policy to the world. You were, in a sense, secret line to the American administration, but you also were the ambassador to American Jewry, to the American Jewish community. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like there was something changed, something fundamental changed in the relationship between Israel and, and the Jewish community in America, and maybe internally among American Jews during that period. W what did you see? My bona fides as a person who was uh, active on the Iran issue predated uh, my appointment as ambassador. In fact, the, the appointment of ambassador might have stemmed from my activism on the Iran nuclear issue. I published an article in the New Republic prior to that time, which focused exclusively on the Iranian nuclear threat uh, to Israel and to the world. Uh, the prime minister had read it, and even though I wasn't a, a member of his party, I think that, that influenced the decision to, to appoint me. So I came into the job in, in 2009 uh, very much focused on the Iranian nuclear deal and aware that I was dealing with an administration that was making a pivotal shift um, in the Middle East, away from America's traditional allies, which were the Sunni Arabs, the Sunnis, uh, the Saudis, and, uh, and away from Israel, and turning toward Iran, increasingly toward Iran. And we now know in retrospect from facts that have been declassified that uh, President Obama, from his very first week in office, um, was seeking to establish ties with the Supreme Leader, uh, with the Iranian regime, and that, uh, that desire to reach an historic agreement with Iran played out in many, many fields, um, including the field of Syria, where the United States very much did not intervene to save 500,000 uh, Syrians from massacre or to prevent 11 million Syrians from being evicted from their homes. But the Iranian nuclear deal gets caught up with a number of other issues in the United States. One of them was the, the deepening and ultimately unbridgeable polarization uh, between the Republican and Democratic parties, 
where you have upwards of 80% of the American Jews voting Democratic. It gets caught up with the presidential election cycle, that anything you say against the Iran nuclear deal would be interpreted immediately as something against President Obama, against his administration, undue Israeli interference in the elections. It gets caught up in so many different uh, issues. The issue comes up at a time of increasing dissatisfaction, alienation uh, on the part of a large segment of the liberal American Jewish community from Israel. So you can't divorce the Iranian nuclear position. You added the American Jewish position on that issue from what's happening generally in relationships between Israel and liberal Jewish America. Why were American Jews so deeply connected to the politics to the point where when the politics doesn't work, they're going to say, okay, nothing works. Because it's not just American Jews, it's Americans general. Uh, research has now been done on the fact that beyond race, beyond religion, beyond even sexual orientation, the greatest dividing factor in American society today is politics. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that American Jews who are generally more politically active, they vote about four times as frequently as non-Jews, they're responsible for anything upwards of 40% of the political giving in the United States, by the way, the both parties, um, it shouldn't be surprising to us that they get caught up in the politics of this. But beyond that, there was a concerted effort by the administration to drag the American Jewish community into this. Now, at a time now where everyone now is accusing President Trump, rightly or wrongly, I'm not going to into this, of sort of making Israel a wedge issue and saying to American Jews, if you don't support me, don't su you're not going to be supporting Israel, you're going to be disloyal, uh, and coming up to a tremendous amount of criticism on that, but the first one to do that was Barack Obama. And he did it very successfully, much more eloquently, I must say, uh, in a speech he gave at uh, Addis Israel, uh, the major conservative synagogue uh, in Washington, D.C. I was very active in that synagogue. Uh, a full house. Um, he made the following syllogism. He said, I am, quote unquote, the first American Jewish president. First, first American yes, Jewish yes. president. I am the American Jewish cousin because I represent, my values are American Jewish values. Uh, those values led me to sign this agreement with the Iranians. Therefore, if you are American Jews with those values, you have to support this agreement. And the subtext of that speech was the guy who doesn't represent American Jewish values and my values is the elected prime minister of the state of Israel. Now, that was a very painful speech to listen to, but that is where really it began. So. Uh, American Jews were dragged into this debate. And I must say, having had a number of conversations with uh, leading American rabbis after the signing of the agreement, um, and I expressed the, the deep hurt I felt over the fact that upwards of, uh, you know, a majority of American Jews supported an agreement that jeopardized my family, my children, my grandchildren, and endangered our lives, um, they came to me and said, well, American, the, the Israeli government really never really reached out to us. The Obama administration, we were repeatedly at the White House. We were never called into the Prime Minister's office. So I think that uh, you know, there's blame that can go around here, mm -hmm. but it remains an open wound. Do you think that this was a strategic decision by the administration? Do you think they did things other than just give, this, give that speech? Because I remember... No question about it. Read, read the article about Ben Rhodes by David Samuels. He's yeah, how, how they, how they specifically chose certain American Jewish um, journalists to deliver the message. Yeah. That's fair, all's fair in love and politics, okay? Because yeah, APAC was a bipartisan organization, still is, with Democrats and Republicans, and all of a sudden, you know, like it was coordinated theater, we were all getting attacked 
saying that these institutions are actually Likud, Netanyahu, right-wing institutions, and suddenly there's J Street, and suddenly there's signs all over the subway in Washington saying, APAC does not speak for me. It didn't feel like it was a sudden grassroots thing. It felt like it was almost a coordinated effort to say, by J Street was basically founded by the Obama administration. It was a wing of the Obama administration. That's the way I regarded it, by the way. That's, I, that was my, my duty as ambassador, to interact with J Street as a wing of the Obama administration. And J Street was founded uh, to support the two-state solution, the Palestinian issue. Uh, the minute the Iran issue came up, it, it did a 180-degree uh, you know, turn and became a pro-Iran deal organization. That tells you, you know, where JSG was getting its marching orders from. Michael, uh, maybe you can help me understand, uh, because I, I'm having a very hard time understanding how people aren't connecting the dots. Uh, I feel like I grew up in a liberal Jewish home, and because of that, you know, I would have to say, based on the environment I grew up in and, and Cincinnati, where I grew up, being the center of Reform Judaism, I would have to say that the idea of tikkun olam as the center of the progressive and liberal you know, Jewish people movement, whatever you would like to call that group of people. What I can't understand, like I said before, is how people aren't connecting the dots. I mean, the blatant effort to divide American Jewry, the delegitimization of you know, traditional Zionist institutions like APAC and, and the missions of APAC and the emergence of things like J Street, the Ben Rhodes article um, in, it, in the Atlantic that laid out many issues. And I think, like you said earlier, um, the targeting of Jewish journalists to, to tell the story of the Iran deal, the cash that was given to Iran, the fact that we allowed them to keep ICBMs and use ICBMs, the creation of the Syrian refugee crisis, the 500,000 dead, the millions displaced, the expansion of Iranian influence in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen. What don't I see? Why am I not connecting the dots on why they're not connecting the dots? I think with, with all due respect, Adam, you're misreading uh, the nature of liberalism and progressivism in America, and particularly among liberalism and progressivism among Maybe American Jews. Yeah. The fact that you've moved here is, is it, at this stage in, in your life, in this stage in Israel's history and in America's uh, history, means that you're probably not part of that progressive wing of the Democratic Party. For sure. For <laughs> so sure. you can't say that you, just because you're your age, because of chronological similarities, you represent, you in any way resemble a majority of young liberal American Jews. No, but you don't. Whether it's the, it's the product of the 60s or the product of two uh, disastrous wars uh, in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the liberals and progressives have developed a, a deep um, abhorrence of the use of military force um, and um, a deep belief in international diplomacy and the ameliorative effects of international uh, diplomacy. Yeah, I like sunshine and rainbows too. Yeah, they're, they're very pro-UN, very pro even UN um, agencies that condemn Israel more frequently than all other countries in the world combined. Um, by the way, the administration was, was intensely aware of this. Um, the administration came out early in the Iran nuclear debate with a line, it's either the deal or war. The alternative to, a, to the deal was a better deal uh, to be achieved through sanctions and diplomacy, but not war. But that was, that was the best. They, they established this dichotomy, this Manichaean universe. You're gonna go to, you're gonna, once, you, once you put an American Jew before, you place before him that option, it's either diplomacy or war. Of course they're going to go for diplomacy. That is the nature of progressive thought today. It's also the fact that, that Israel played into that. Israel, the uh, colonialist uh, settler country, the white privileged country, I must be said. Um, and you know, the fact that we are coming 
to the United States and arguing, and this has to be said, arguing with the, the first African-American president who has made the Iran deal the centerpiece of his foreign policy, of eight years of policymaking, okay? This, the stage is set. And then the lights come up, and what do we see with the lights come up? You see Benjamin Netanyahu, at the invitation of the Republicans, without coordinating with the White House, without informing the White House, uh, delivering uh, a speech to a joint session of Congress uh, against the President of the United States, against the deal. You were against it. Yeah, I was against yeah. it. I played a political price for it here by being against it. Um, to this day, I still have, I have questions in my mind whether my opposition was, was right or wrong. Tell you the truth, I have to, it's not easy for an Israeli politician, public figure, to say he's he's uncertain or he doesn't know. At the time, and this hasn't changed, I realized that this speech would would create very deep and potentially unresolvable divisions between Israel and the Democratic Party. And I hear from friends of the Democratic to this day that they have not forgotten that speech. Tremendous divides between us uh, and the African American community, with which I was as very close, also the way I was brought up. Uh, next to Newark, my father running a, a Jewish hospital in the middle of the largest uh, ghetto in the United States, which meant very much to me. Those type of divisions could not be bridged. On the other hand, there is a benefit, and it may be too early to truly assess the extent of this benefit, of setting out exactly why we opposed this deal, why it was a danger to us, why we danger to the Middle East, to the world, and even to the United States. And those who have taken up opposition, particularly in this administration, <laughs> are reading from a, I would say, a, a, a rule book that was set out by Benjamin Netanyahu in, in March of 2015 before a joint session of the Congress. Contradistinction to the rockets in the hands of Hezbollah or the rockets in the hands of Hamas, the Iranian nuclear threat is very complicated. It's highly technical. There are very few Israelis who understand it. So if I were to tell you right now, this week, Iran is saying that it's going to violate the terms of the agreement by enriching a certain amount of uranium to 20%. Mm -hmm. Now, how many people in the world know that enriching uranium from 3% to 20% is actually 96% of the distance you need to go to enrich that uranium to weapons grade? Because it's much harder to get from 3% to 20% than it is to get from 20% to 95%. Right. Okay, for example, <laughs> uh, and that, that in itself is a highly complex difference between you know, uh, LEU, low enriched uranium, and HEU, high enriched uranium. And what does breakout time mean? What does it mean when you have a centrifuge which can produce X number of enriched uranium in a certain amount of hour, but you're gonna install new centrifuges that can do it in four times? Now, how does that reduce the breakout time? Even by what I'm telling you now right. are basically the monarch notes of the Iranian nuclear program, but it is immensely complex. I published an article a couple of weeks ago, again in The Atlantic, called the, the, the Three Myths of the Iran Nuclear Deal. Now, one of them we've discussed already, war or diplomacy. It was a myth. Well, the other myth was, as uh, President Obama said in an interview, that the deal would help make Iran a constructive regional actor. Right. Um, if construction means being uh, complicit in the murder of a half million people in Syria and taking over chunks of Iraq and, and taking over Lebanon completely and, and smuggling rockets into Gaza so they could be fired at us, that, that's constructive. It was precisely the, the champions of multiculturalism Right. Who believed that the Iranians could be bought off from being, you know, devout Shiite Muslims. The, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, from an Iranian perspective... It's the greatest thing in the world. was the greatest thing in the world. That's why they're fighting tooth and nail to keep it. If it's such a hard deal for them, no one even points this out. If it's such a hard deal for them, why are they struggling so mightily to preserve it? 
And the reason is, it was a bonanza for them. It enabled them to fulfill their grand strategy for the Middle East and later for the world. What? It was a very simple grand strategy. It was, okay, this deal is going to freeze a certain amount of our program for about seven years. During that time, we can develop more advanced centrifuges and cut down the breakdown. We can develop the ICBMs to carry the missiles. Got a ton of cash. Okay. Mm -hmm. And with the money <laughs> and the legitimacy, the legitimacy right. is very, very important, we can extend our, in, our, our hegemony around the Middle East. Now, there's one problem in this whole vision. It's the state of Israel. We weren't going to sit passively and let these guys bomb us. But the Iranians then were going to do the following. They were going to, they were going to surround Israel with missiles in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq. Yemen can cut off the entrance to the, to the, to the Red Sea and in Gaza. And if Israel tried to do anything, once Iran moved to break out and created not one but hundreds of nuclear bombs, they would pummel us. And they'd pummel us with rockets, they would take out all of our essential infrastructure, all of our utilities, they'd basically paralyze us. That was a brilliant strategy. There was one wrench in the work, and the strategy was a guy called Donald Trump, who comes along and says, okay, I'm not going to go along with this. I don't know <laughs> how long the wrench, the wrench is going to stay in the works, but that's it. Uh, in, in terms of long-term strategic thinking, you've got to take your hats off to the people in Tehran. Look, President Obama was not the first president to use in vogue uh, ideologies to advance policy positions. At all. If you were given the ability to change something mm -hmm. fundamental, what would it be for the sake of Jewish identity? It starts with budgets. I say often, as a state of Israel, we now have a half trillion dollar economy has a state of Israel made a strategic decision that preserving the Jewish people both in Israel and beyond Israel is a paramount national interest for us. It it's is a, very a good point. strategic interest, it is a defense interest, but it's also a moral interest. Uh, are we, in fact, the nation state of the Jewish people as we say we are? Actually, it's actually embedded in law now. And are we going to live up to what we enacted? So far, we have not. The state of Israel gives a certain amount of money to programs like Birthright, like Massah, but are we actually supporting Jewish education in the United States? Uh, actually reaching out to those same disaffected segments of the liberal progressive wing of the Jewish community, as difficult as it can be sometimes. I went several times to talk to the J Street board. Not easy, but uh, I feel it's something we have to do. The only way ultimately to, I think, to overcome that is by getting young Jews here. My spouse, Leslie, one of her best friend's daughter came here as a student at an Ivy League school. And she came here on a program that placed her as an intern in this really high-tech company. We at the Israel uh, Innovation Fund have a, uh, have a bunch of interns every summer who come from the United States. What is it about spending a summer with a high-tech company as opposed to a highly choreographed, programmed trip? What's it, what is it about that experience that, that makes a difference? It's the commonality. It's showing that oh, here, you, you people, you Jews living here in the Middle East, 7,000 miles from my home, uh, have something in common with me. Now, the big question is, does that experience in the high-tech company, in the startup, does that translate? Does that same young person go home and say, wow, this is interesting. I want to pursue this more. I so, want to so learn about who I am and why I have a connection to this country. I always felt like... Mm. If somebody comes to Israel, has an experience, and goes back, and it continues to resonate, I'm not sure it's the commonality. I kind of feel like 
they go back home and maybe they're missing, they feel like something special they had here, something different mm -hmm. from what's going on in the States, hit them. I think you're right. There's a line I used to use uh, in public addresses as ambassador, and it went something like this. I talk about how I had to give up my American citizenship in order to be ambassador. And I went to the American Embassy, and the, the Consul General took a big uh, sort of sterling silver hole puncher and punched a hole in my passport, you know, right where the American Eagle was. And I'd say to young American Jews, you should know that this country, the state of Israel, belongs to you in a way that no other country can ever belong to you. And nobody can ever put a hole in your passport because your passport is membership in the Jewish people. Now, if I could ask, I, it's very nice to say that. The question is, if that reality were internalized, that nobody can take it, it away from them and it belongs to them, that great word, it belongs to them in some profound and fundamental way, that is what we could do. To me, that's much more than a shared value. It's a belonging. It's, um, it's mishpocha. We're looking at one side of the coin. The other coin is, is young Israelis um, who may not feel all that more atta attached than, than young American Jews. And I was, the, uh, for a year, the representative of the State of Israel on the Borthright Board, this representative of the State of Israel. And one of the fascinating uh, facts that I learned about Birthright is that uh, you know, there have been about 600,000 young Jews have come on Birthright, but about 90,000 Israelis have participated. Mm -hmm. It's really big for young Israelis. And that the impact on young Israelis is every bit, if not bigger, than it is on American Jews, because for most Israelis, have never encountered Jewish peoplehood. Right. And they don't know what I have in common with, you know, with Rachel and, 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 and Corey in Long Island. They don't know. And all of a sudden they get on this bus, you know, usually as young soldiers, and they see these, these young people from around the world. What do I have in common with them? And it sinks in over the course of 10 days that what they have in common with them is Jewish peoplehood. And it's transformative for their lives. It really is. So we have to invest um, in both places, not just in, not just in the United States. It all boils down to peoplehood and creating that and reminding people of what peoplehood lives. And we're facing huge challenges in the United States today. There's a tremendous campaign against what they call tribalism. Mm -hmm. Tribalism is the root of all evil. Mm -hmm. Unless you happen to be a member of an Native American tribe, which in case it's fine. Um, but you know, if you're a member of the Jewish tribe, it's bad. And, and tribalism, in fact, is what we're about. We are a tribe. Is to not understand that the Jews are a tribe is not to get this place. It's not to understand Jewish history. It's I think not, you just violated Twitter's terms of service. <laughs> <laughs> and it's to not understand that it was because we are a tribe that uh, in the Bible we were chosen to give it a message for all of humanity. That the, the tribe is the vehicle for conveying the message. Um, and we are only effective as long as we're a tribe. We can only convey that message effectively if we, if we, are, if we are a tribe. I have a very important question that we are going to be asking everybody this right. on our uh, podcast. And I want you to Give it some thought. Do you believe in UFOs? No. Alas, Alas. Uh, it, it's probably a failure of imagination on my part. And uh, Leslie will always cite that uh, scientific study that says, you know, scientifically, mathematically, there must be UFOs. But uh, I don't. I, do. so don't I am, I am however, a believing person. <laughs> and I believe that, uh, that whoever created us created a universe. And if whoever created us wanted there to be UFOs, there should be UFOs. There we go. <laughs> Michael, absolute pleasure to have you here. Really, thank always you so great, much guys. For thank this you for the, for the wine. Thank you, thank you for the cupcakes. Don't, don't forget right. to plant the vine. Right. That's right. Wine on the vine.org. This is 
the Blue Corner podcast of the Israel Innovation Fund. We're really, really glad to have Michael Oren with us today. Together with Adam Scott Bellows, I'm David Hazzoni, and that's it. That's it. Great, guys. Thank you.